there's no roadmap for this community to age. So if you're a person with hemophilia who's 75 years old, you are managing your bleeding disorder, you may be managing HIV medication for over 30 years, perhaps you had a hepatitis diagnosis that you were able to clear but the damage has been done, and then you just have the natural course of aging heart disease, having to get a colonoscopy, diabetes. And so there, there's no roadmap of what this population can expect. I don't think physicians know either. We're in uncharted territory. Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident person with hemophilia. And that voice you just heard belongs to social worker and researcher Sarah Schwartz. You'll hear more from Sarah later as we return to Aging with Hemophilia, The Triumphs, Burdens, and Uncertainties of Longevity, Part 2. Thanks for listening. We'll dive back in right after this quick word from our featured advertiser. Sanofi seeks to break barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. On the previous episode, renowned hematologists and researchers Dr. Barbara Conkle and Dr. Jerry Dolan took us through some of the critical background on the advancements in treatment and care that have enabled us to even have this historic cohort of aging and older people with hemophilia in the first place. We covered the intersections of aging with hemophilia with cardiovascular disease and heart health, as well as with musculoskeletal health. Patient, researcher, and self-titled geezer guy, Randy Curtis, shared insights from his studies into older cohorts of people living with hemophilia. And patient-slash-doctor specialized in elderly medicine, William McKeown, highlighted the concept of frailty and the lack of understanding around the relationship between hemophilia and frailty, particularly in older people. We heard a clear call for hemophilia treatment centers around the world to expand their concept of holistic, comprehensive care. And we listened to a bit of patient Jonathan Hill's remarkable story and outlook as we featured clips from his audio show, Blood of the Paladin, which, like Global Hemophilia Report, is part of the Bloodstream Media Network. And with as much as we covered last time, there is still a lot to get to on today's episode. We'll explore aging with hemophilia's intersection with liver disease, renal disease, and dysfunction of the urinary and reproductive systems. And before wrapping up, we'll also hear some thoughts on the global picture of aging with hemophilia as it stands today. But first... What has been my experience with aging during my life? Matt Taché is an adult male with hemophilia who has an interesting take on what it means to be aging with hemophilia. 
Um, getting older, uh, I, it's interesting because I feel like I'm getting better and more healthy the older I get. I feel like I'm in the best health of my life. I think having a disadvantage of having hemophilia, like in a sense, has become an advantage. Like, oh, okay, I've got this problem. I bleed. All the other kids can run around and do these activities. I have to compensate for it. I have to think about things in the future like insurance and health care and make sure I'm taking my medicine on time. And that's made me more responsible. And so in that sense, I've already stayed like where other people might like, okay, you're turning 45, you're turning 50, you've got arthritis, now you can't do anything? No, you totally can't. For Matt, growing up with challenges, limitations, and responsibilities because of hemophilia has set him up to adopt a can-do and more responsible mindset. Accounting for the actual lived experiences of people aging with hemophilia is a critical part of understanding the needs in that community. We did a research project interviewing 27 people living with hemophilia who were middle-aged and older to try to understand life histories. That's Tam Perry. Tam is a faculty member at the Wayne State School of Social Work, and she's the training director for the university's Institute of Gerontology. She is the research colleague of Sarah, the social worker whose voice you heard at the top of the episode. Here, Tam provides some background on the research project that she and Sarah have been working on. Basically, some things we heard were that there was more need for talking about planning for aging, planning for being a caregiver, going to other physicians and explaining their hemophilia in addition to other challenges or illnesses that may be associated with aging. So I think there's a way that because this cohort didn't expect to age, practitioners aren't necessarily providing all the information. This is a, like Tam said, a population who didn't expect to age, whose life expectancy has changed through life. As young children, they maybe didn't expect to live into their 20s. And then treatment advances enabled them to envision a longer life. And then the contaminated blood supply shortened that life. So there's been a lot of emotional whiplash and trauma, and bleeding disorders can be quite painful. So there's also an emotional and mental health consequence to being in pain and chronic pain and everything that goes along with that, social isolation and depression and anxiety and fear and helplessness. And There are also financial needs because people didn't plan their careers in the same way. And stigma and othering, particularly around HIV and AIDS. That's an area that we discovered is not fully appreciated by providers, particularly younger providers who might not have this historical perspective. There's both issues of aging and our practitioners be prepared to talk about, but also if someone's older in the hemophilia community, their complex histories. But the other thing I want to say on a positive side is that we've had great interest in our work from practitioners, so social workers, et cetera. And, you know, many of them, maybe they didn't sort of think about this intersection as much as Sarah and I have, but I think the work they do on the ground every day is helping people navigate through this. The other thing that's really apparent is this need for the intersection with different people in the community. So from what we understand, some people are very involved and then some people really are very distanced in our interviews, we met people, and it was remarkable to me at an older age that they said they do not know a single other person with hemophilia. Each generation gets better and better, and that's what hemophilia is all about. This is Mike Hargett, another fellow blood brother with hemophilia, reflecting on aging with hemophilia. 
With me and aging, I'm very in touch with the community and the support to be like, hey, did you have a radioisotopic synovectomy? I did too, that's cool, man. Like you can only talk about certain things with other people that have gone through it, but also if you can talk about it and joke about it, makes it like less of a like, oh my God, we're aging sort of thing. You know, it's like a, we're aging, it's cool, now let's see what's next, you know? So this idea of sort of peer support as people are living longer is also something that could really be expanded. What findings from your research do you believe to be most pivotal as it relates to the psychosocial impact of aging persons with hemophilia and for the purposes of directing future research? For me, one of the most important takeaways was the role that trauma has played in the lives of these individuals and rethinking complex trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder associated with having disease and disability, invisible and visible disabilities, and what that looks like throughout the lifetime, as well as these complicated historical points in time around, you know, the AIDS crisis and hiding. And, you know, there's a lot of trauma in this community that is not well represented, I think, in what exists and is not discussed in medical schools or in graduate social work programs or psychology programs, or maybe even with physical therapists and occupational therapists. And for me, that is a huge takeaway. I think of being a child with a bleeding disorder prior to the current treatment methods as as being an adverse childhood experience. There's a lot of literature on adverse childhood experiences and health outcomes, but we haven't really associated that with bleeding disorders. One of the other next steps we're interested in is calling attention to issues of gender because women have different experiences than men as they age in this community. And then the other thing I think is making sure variation of all kinds are recognized. Their stories are investigated and documented. So for instance, one very concrete follow-up we would do to our first project if funded would be to look at people of color experiencing aging with hemophilia and how that may or may not differ from sort of what we heard in our first study. So that's very important. But also to understand more the barriers to be part of the community, Uh, language issues, or you might have sort of fears or concerns about coming into treatment centers, etc. So trying to get at subpopulations that maybe are almost rendered invisible in this process. We would be very interested in doing more multilingual investigations as well as sub-communities who, again, it's about understanding the variation as this population ages. That's a great point. Just to follow up on that, the intersectional identities that people navigate through life. Our sample was predominantly white and hemophilia is not a primarily white disease. So it is important to collect information from people to understand the intersectional experiences around race, gender, rural versus urban, language barriers. We do know that there are groups of people who come to the United States for treatment when they cannot receive it in other countries. So it would be interesting to look more at that as well. The psychosocial component of aging with hemophilia is complex, important, and an area of research that fortunately has passionate and committed champions like Tam and Sarah. But why? What's led Tam and Sarah to this specific area of focus? They tell us right after this quick break. 
Hemophilia A and B are both bleeding disorders. However, they have their own unique pathologies and clinical features which makes them inherently different. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to the distinct behavior of factor IX, multiple pharmacokinetic or PK parameters should be considered when assessing the treatment and management of hemophilia B. So what does this mean for people with hemophilia? Visit the bigger picture in hemeb.com to see how a broader view of PK may influence hemophilia B treatment. That's the bigger picture in hemb.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back. Here's Sarah. I uh, serve on the board of directors for the National AIDS Memorial. And prior to that position, I was on the board of the directors of the HIV Story Project in San Francisco. And we had, the HIV Story Project is now part of the National AIDS Memorial. We do a series every year called Surviving Voices, where we spotlight a community that has been impacted by HIV and AIDS, whose stories have not been widely shared. Our second chapter was the hemophilia community, and that's where I really learned about what happened with HIV and AIDS in this community. I've been active as a volunteer in HIV and AIDS since the early 90s. So I was stunned that I didn't know this history. That's when I became involved and I did a pro bono project, the history of HIV and AIDS in the hemophilia community. I collected 37 interviews from family members and long-term survivors. And that one of the findings from that study was that there is no roadmap for aging. That was the starting point for this project with TAM. Aging with hemophilia has numerous intersections to consider and explore. And the aftermath of the contaminated blood era that Sarah just spoke to is itself a complex topic. Included in that complexity, the long-term consequences of HIV and HCV particularly as it pertains to kidney and liver health. Dr. Jerry Dolan shares more. One of the important comorbidities that face particularly a number of older individuals with hemophilia is HIV. And we know that HIV itself can damage the kidneys and so can the medication that's being used to control HIV. So when when we're studying an older population and looking at renal disease, it can be a bit noisy because we know that there are important conditions which we know are predisposing to renal disease in any population. We're trying to focus on the pure effect of hemophilia, if you like, and how that may play with regard to renal function. As we know, renal function, like many body functions, decline with age. But with haemophilia, there's this tantalizing physical sign that we can see, which is blood in the urine. How is that playing a part in renal disease? Is it a consequence of renal disease or is it the cause of renal disease? Is that an early warning? Is that an early sign of renal disease in individuals with haemophilia? And then other comorbidities, so if the patients are on antiplatelet therapy or if they've got diabetes, and they may have another reason for the kidney damage. So these are complex interactions. And what we want to understand is, does haemophilia itself play a role? 
given that these are complex interactions, for patients who are seeking answers and support for renal disease or kidney disease, are the hemophilia treatment centers adequately set up to provide that? Randy Curtis responds. Well, I don't think the world is the same as it used to be where you would go to the HTC and the hematologist and the hematology team would have to serve as both a liver doctor and infectious disease doc. Those have been kind of parceled out. Everybody's kind of got their piece of the puzzle. And so for those with liver disease as an aftermath of EV infection or even HIV infection, those liver disease problems are being taken care of by hepatology in close coordination with the HTC comprehensive care model. And is that in part because the impact of HIV and HCV on people with hemophilia in 2023 is simply lessening from what it used to be? Yeah, less people are dying of HIV. No doubt about it, less people are dying of HCV. That's, that's, that's true. So yeah, the effects of those two infections is lessening. So in our study of 40 and above, 75% of that group had had hepatitis C infection. And almost 80% of those had been treated. And of that 80% of the 75%, 82% had cleared the hepatitis C virus. In terms of liver disease and hemophilia, particularly in older individuals, this is Dr. Barbara Conkle. The biggest advance, which has been really life-changing for our patients, is the ability to eradicate hepatitis C. Almost all our patients are now treated. Basically, these people are no longer, by and large, no longer suffering from the effects of active hepatitis C infection. A couple of years ago, they would come in and say, oh, I'm going to see the hepatologist. And then the next time I see them, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm cured. And it is just so heartwarming to see that. We've gone from liver failure being the most common cause of disease to it not being. And we're back to bleeding, which is a nice thing to be back to. Not, We don't want our patients to die, but we don't want them to die of something like liver failure from hepatitis C. Now, the sequelae of that is that there are a number of folks with liver disease. In 2012, that was about 40 years past most of the folks' infections with hepatitis C. And we had a huge die-off of the guys that had survived HIV. We lost about 30% of those that had survived to liver disease because of hepatitis C. But that's right when those first drugs came out to treat hepatitis C, and that's when we stopped having hepatitis C. Now, a lot of those guys still had liver damage, severe liver damage, and what we're starting to see is this growing cohort of liver transplants. I got my transplant last year. I have a small, I have a growing number of colleagues that are getting liver transplants. And for all intents and purposes, that kind of heals you from having hemophilia as well. So the the flip side of the HCV infection is that there are people that are being cured of hemophilia by liver transplant. But what about cirrhosis and damage that's already been done in the liver at the time that someone is cured of hepatitis C? What do we know about the long-term outcomes given the pre-existing damage that's been done? We know from data in the general population, and I don't think there's any reason to believe it's different. Once the hepatitis C is cleared, that there's improvement in liver function, even in those who have a diagnosis of cirrhosis. So that has been just incredible. One thing we have to keep in mind in our patient population is that many of them had hepatitis C longer 
than some of the individuals in the studies who are having follow-up. And they had varying degree of liver disease at the time of treatment. And my understanding is their amount of fibrosis they have in their liver at the time of treatment is important in terms of long-range risk of liver cancer, even though their liver will continue to get better. So those are things we still have to pay attention to. What about liver disease as it relates to gene therapy and a person with hemophilia's candidacy for gene therapy, given everything that we know about the role of the liver in that process? So in terms of gene therapy and particular issues related to the liver, I've been intrigued by the age of clinical trial participants. Because in the beginning, it was a lot of older individuals who really were doing it altruistically. I know the first man to receive gene therapy to the liver, he said he had a grandson with hemophilia. And he said, if I can be but a cog in the wheel of progress, that is what I want to do. So he was a perfect phase one study candidate. And now it's really younger men. It's limited to men at this point. And so as we get to older individuals, their livers have mostly seen hepatitis B and cleared and seen hepatitis C and cured by medication. And that's not true of everyone, but that's true of many. And there are a lot of unanswered questions there, and we have to discuss that with our patients. We haven't really addressed is what happens to these guys that get gene therapy? That's going to change some things when that happens? There was a man in his 60s in a factor nine gene therapy trial who developed liver cancer. And there was very extensive study and the data are strong that it is not associated with the gene therapy. But I think it gave us all a little pause to say, look at this man's other risk factors for liver cancer. And would we want to have him get gene therapy in the setting of all those other risk factors? It was a lesson in being perhaps a little more cautious in that group. It's a whole new medical world too. This is social worker and gerontologist Tam Perry again during a follow-up phone call. So things that came up in our interviews about gene therapy, and I know this is very interesting and exciting as a next sort of medical trajectory, I just think we have to also make sure that we're understanding the lived experiences of aging and these options and as medicine and medical advances continue. So that would be our stance as social science scientists is to make sure to understand the lived experience of this. And then specifically, because Sarah and I are both coming from a social work research background, is to understand how to support practitioners who are engaged on the front lines in this work, as well as to think about policies that need to be put in place and advocacy around these issues that probably in a lot of ways are things that weren't really foreseen, um, but are emerging for people. I do chair the steering committee for the World Federation of Hemophilia Gene Therapy Registry, which aims to follow all the patients we can who receive gene therapy long-term. And one of the areas of interest will be liver health. And we are collecting initial data on hepatitis B, C, HIV status. Moving next into the area of genitourinary health, or that which relates to genitals and urinary organs, as previously mentioned, Dr. Jerry Dolan belongs to a research collective called the Advanced Study Group. 
Now, among the areas of interest to that group is the burden of renal and genitourinary dysfunctions in men who are aging with hemophilia. We asked Dr. Dolan why the advanced group chose to investigate this in the first place, what they learned, and what is his opinion on what these findings suggest about future priorities for multidisciplinary research. The advanced study on genitourinary conditions in hemophilia arose initially linked with our investigation of hypertension. Hypertension, or high blood pressure, and its intersection with aging persons with hemophilia is a topic we covered in part one. There was this um, clear potential link between renal disease, renal events in haemophilia and hypertension. One key issue that all haemophilia physicians and many haemophilia patients will have been aware of is hematuria, blood in the urine, which really was quite common in the past. And some individuals suffer from it on a recurrent basis, some patients now and again. And it's not fully understood why patients bled from their kidneys and whether that caused any lasting damage to the kidneys because we know that anything that disturbs the kidneys can lead to an abnormality of kidney function, renal function. When other studies in other populations or in familial hypertension have looked at reasons, it's often gone to the kidney. And we know that individuals with hemophilia have more hematuria. So perhaps it's kidney damage that's leading to hypertension. And I think it's a great hypothesis, but the studies have not proven that. So they have not been able to show a link with hematuria, with kidney disease, or with hypertension. And so I think we still don't know. So we collected a lot of that information and we were interested in prostate disease because prostate issues are pretty common in men as they mature. And we were interested to see, is there a difference? Is it an issue for hemophilia or is it just part of being an older man? Managing prostate disease, now we have different techniques, less invasive and less traumatic using a minimally invasive approach, you can get rid of the prostate swelling without causing any disruption to the tissues and therefore bleeding in individuals with hemophilia. So these are all areas that we were looking at with great interest. Dr. Dolan acknowledges the limitations of certain studies and research. Sometimes it's difficult because of the retrospective nature of the data that you collect. So if you're looking at case records, they may not contain the level of detail that you need to get clear answers. For in the prospective data, which are still being collected, we would hope to show some clarity because we did find a link with hematuria and high blood pressure. And it's still not entirely clear what that cause is, what, what that link is, what, what's the actual pathogenesis, what's the actual underlying condition that's, that's arising. Another area of genitourinary health is sexual health. What about sex and sexual health in aging persons with hemophilia? What data do we have to support the stated needs, and what members of a patient's care team may be best suited to address this area of health? So I'm very glad you asked about this Dr. William McKeown is a person living with haemophilia as well as a doctor specialized in geriatric medicine. I think for too long, sex in the elderly has been taboo subject, but actually it's a really important part of older people's identity and older people's lives. We'll talk more about sex and aging with haemophilia, the late night portion of the episode, right after one more word from our featured advertiser. 
preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit thebiggerpictureinhemeb.com to learn how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's thebiggerpictureinhemb.com. This site is intended for U.S. HCPs only. Welcome back. Dr. McKeown continues. There's a fantastic longitudinal study that takes place in Ireland called TILDA, which is the Irish Longitudinal Study of Aging. Uh, and they found that the majority of people who are over 50 are sexually active, and the vast majority of those people are sexually active more than once a month. So people are living longer, people are having sex later, and so empowering people in that area of their life is very important. It's important we ask about it. It's important we don't sweep it under the rug for sake of embarrassment, but we actually engage with that. Often sexual health has multifaceted drivers. So yes, cardiovascular health, particularly for men with erectile dysfunction, poor cardiovascular health increases your risk of erectile dysfunction and vice versa. But there are also psychological elements that are very important and relationship elements. And I think a geriatrician is actually somebody who's who's well-placed to help patients in this area because it needs a holistic approach that doesn't just look at single systems, but looks at people's psychology, looks at their social circumstances, their well-being, as well as their cardiovascular risk. Given Dr. McKeown's or Will's dual role as both a person with hemophilia, albeit not a member of this aging persons with hemophilia cohort, and his role as a medical care provider specialized in elderly care, we asked him for his take on how the social needs of aging people with hemophilia are currently being met through comprehensive care models and how they are not, again, both from his perspective as a patient and provider. Yeah, so I, I think this question really gets at the heart of what care of the elderly medicine is about. So as people get older, their problems aren't just single in nature, but they're multifaceted. So if we come up with single system or single issue solutions to people's health problems, we are not going to come up with a satisfactory answer. So it's important that we have comprehensive care models that address holistically what's going on with somebody's health. And so in care of the elderly, we often think in terms of what's called a comprehensive geriatric assessment. We look at people's health in broad brushstrokes, not just their physical health, but How's their cognition? How's their mood? What's their sensory impairment like? Can they hear? Can they see? What is their social circumstance like? Do they have support at home? Do they have friends or relatives or loved ones that can help them? And for us, dealing with frail elderly people, we can only help them if we come up with solutions that look at all of these things that are comprehensive in nature. So in terms of bringing that back to haemophilia and the comprehensive care centre, one of the most important things about delivering comprehensive care and a comprehensive geriatric assessment is having access to a good multidisciplinary team. And perhaps in the past, we've just thought of this in terms of we need a physio. But actually, a multidisciplinary team is so much more than that. It's doctor, nurse, physio, occupational therapy, speech and language therapist, dietitian, social work. 
psychology as well. We really need these big, broad, multidisciplinary teams working in a comprehensive care settings that can address these issues that come with growing older. And in the UK, we see a lot of variation in the availability of the multidisciplinary team. So we've centres that have physios, but very few have occupational therapists. Many don't have psychological support services, something that's especially important in the haemophilia population that is living with the consequences of contaminated blood in many cases. So as a provider, we need to think about getting a proper multidisciplinary team in place because in many cases, that's just not available. So for the the person with haemophilia, I guess our centres, sometimes they don't they're not necessarily responsive enough. So they need to be responsive to people's needs and they need to be able to meet those needs. I think as well, because we are patients with chronic health conditions, we have a very close relationship with our centres. Sometimes we need the centres to step into the role of family practitioner or general practitioner because they are the healthcare professional we know and trust probably more than someone else for whom they're family practitioner might occupy that role. So for us, I think we need our comprehensive care centres to be able to meet some of our day-to-day health needs as well, not just our haemophilia. Those remarks resonate with Dr. Dolan's remarks in part one, calling for haemophilia treatment centres to expand their offerings to include routine checkups, tests, and exams that would traditionally take place with a primary care physician for the same reasons that Dr. McKeown has just laid out here in part two. Dr. Dolan touches on this again as he addresses one of our final topics, malignancy, cancer, and predisposition to malignancy specifically related to hemophilia in aging people. One of the major issues with clinical studies in hemophilia is that inevitably you're looking at studies with relatively small numbers of patients. And we've known for some time, if you look at inhibitor studies or or other studies in hemophilia, that you can generate different results from apparently similar methods applied to studying the question. And it's very, very important in this area of malignancy. So we know not many things get better as people get older. And one, one of the other medical issues that arises in individuals as they age is that the risk of cancer generally increases. So if you're looking at a defined population such as haemophilia, it's really very important that you don't scare people by generating, say for instance, an apparent increased risk of a certain cancer, or that we're not falsely reassured by an apparent lack of cancers. And so this is, I'm sure that everybody's aware that there's a general plea now that these single center registers or single center studies are perhaps replaced by bigger bodies of data through national registers and then more importantly, probably international registers so that we actually really have a good understanding about what, if any, actual risks exist and perhaps understanding what we can do to change that. I think there is one other major issue in individuals with haemophilia and malignancy, perhaps anecdotally, perhaps from my own experience, but certainly talking to other individuals in the haemophilia community, I I, I do genuinely think particularly our older patients with haemophilia, they may not be entering these routine screening programs that are applied to the general population. So maybe they're not going for their colonoscopies or if they develop signs of prostate dysfunction, that they're not going to their family doctors and getting appropriate investigations. 
One of the general screening tools, for instance, bowel malignancy, is to test a sample of stool to see if there's blood in it. And I'm not, I don't think we, we know the full facts of whether people with haemophilia a bleeding disorder maybe generally bleed a bit more anyway, not related to malignancy, and so generate a false positive, if you like, and then get unnecessary investigations. So I think this whole area of preventative strategy and information for individuals with haemophilia is very important in parallel with the larger bodies of epidemiological work, which will help us determine the kind of risk of cancer. And if there is one, what kinds of cancer individuals with haemophilia will have. I have to reassure our listeners that, in fact, from my reading of the data, there does not appear to be any strong signal of any particular risk, increased risk of cancer outside those associated with HIV and hepatitis. Before we hear some final calls to action, as the conversation started to wind down, we acknowledged with Dr. Dolan that this discussion had been implicitly centered around aging people with hemophilia in high-income countries where access to treatment and care is available in ways that it is not in middle- and low-income countries. With this in mind, what do we know about the larger picture of aging with hemophilia from a truly global and inclusive point of view? It's quite a difficult one because when you look at life expectancy in some of these countries, it's pretty grim for the general population. But I think maybe the correct answer is to demonstrate what advances in life expectancy have been achieved through the introduction of proper care for haemophilia. That, you know, if you look in the so-called developed country, if you look back, you know, pre-1940s, the number of individuals with haemophilia was tiny compared to what it is now. And that's all been generated by our approach to managing haemophilia by understanding what what it takes to deliver proper care for haemophilia. And I would say number one is safe and effective factor concentrate, safe and effective replacement therapy. And then one of the potential benefits of looking at the evolution in Western countries is that perhaps maybe individual countries who have not followed that journey of evolution, maybe they can jump, they can take a big leap and enter proactive treatment at a higher standard with some of these new agents. To go back to where we began in part one, most of the challenges that our aging people with hemophilia face are truly a consequence of good hemophilia care, enabling long life. Enabling life long enough to eventually bump into problems that anyone aging might face. Then the question really becomes, how does hemophilia uniquely influence and impact those otherwise natural challenges? But until that same type of quality and consistent care is available to people with hemophilia in developing countries, middle and low income countries, it is difficult, perhaps impossible, to draw any specific conclusions. We've heard various calls for additional research, but as we bring this discussion to a close, we asked Tam Perry for her perspective on what could be done in clinics starting immediately to help elevate the care provided to this population while in parallel, additional research into this population and their needs remains ongoing. Here's her response. Many more providers need to have concrete training on aging issues. And I say this from my own vantage point. I'm the former president of the Gerontological Social Work Society called Age Social Work. And so my background is definitely at the intersection of gerontology and social work. 
And I think that specific training could be really infused into much of the work with practitioners. Medical doctors need more training on aging, I would say. Emergency department doctors need, and physicians and nurses need training. I think OTs and PTs, etc. So I think what's happening is that this sort of intersection with hemophilia is also sort of a clear indication that people need to start thinking about, well, okay, if people are going to age, what is the complexity that would would come with that. And I think there's both physical complexity, how do you navigate a bleeding disorder and say dementia care or and living in a nursing home or assisted living facility? How do you infuse factor in those situations? So there's that kind of stuff. One of the other things that we're working on is because we are aging with hemophilia in the US and because our healthcare delivery system is so fragmented that we're seeing guys with hemophilia in their 70s and 80s having to go into managed care facilities, assisted living facilities, and in some of them, their kids have to come and take them out into the parking lot and infuse them in the parking lot because the assisted living facility can't handle hemophilia. So you're left with this kind of weird break in service. Now, recently, NHF have got some legislation passed to allow Medicare to provide hemophilia treatment in these licensed facilities. But up until then, the state of care for aging people with hemophilia in the U.S. was zero. And either you had to have family members taking care of you or, or I don't know, it wasn't good. And when you compare that to cradle to grave kind of care, they get in the UK or Ireland, it's just unconscionable that we have, we should have this break in service, you know, like you turn 65 and you can't have hemophilia anymore. No person living with a chronic disease, like hemophilia, should ever be made to feel like they've aged out of being deserving of adequate care and attention. This group of people aging with hemophilia are journeying through uncharted territory and in real time. As Sarah said, there is no playbook. And as Randy's final comments just highlighted, the systems themselves are catching up as science has raised the bar and expectations of people living with hemophilia. The psychological and emotional needs, the musculoskeletal needs, the needs of the body's many organs and systems, and the need for the healthcare system itself to adjust are all components of the complexity that is aging with hemophilia. Contributors to these last two episodes have painted a clear picture of the current landscape for this cohort. The ongoing research priorities related to this cohort, the action items and strategies that could be implemented right away, and the open questions still in need of further exploration by researchers around the globe. I would like to thank Dr. Jerry Dolan, Dr. Barbara Conkle, Dr. William McKeown, Randy Curtis, Sarah Schwartz, Tam Perry, Mike Hargett, and Matt Taché for contributing to this episode. Thanks as well to Drs. Dolan and Conkel for serving as topic advisors. Thank you to Senior Advisor Dr. Donna DiMichele for all of your support. And thank you to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. That's a wrap for this episode, part two of our two episodes of coverage of Aging with Hemophilia, The Triumphs, Burdens, and Uncertainties of Longevity. Thanks for listening. 
Subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you get your podcasts to ensure that new episodes hit your feed the moment they go live. Do you know of any clinicians, researchers, scientists, med students, policy wonks, or patient advocates who would benefit from this content? Be sure to send them to globalhemophiliareport.com or encourage them to search the Global Hemophilia Report podcast today. Thank you to our producer, Keith Kornaluk, our editor, Japneet Daliwal, graphic designer, Tony Mendoza, and creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.